This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is February 27th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. My name is Marilyn Armstrong, previously Marilyn Krauss, and before that, Marilyn Friedman. A lot of changes. Um, I wandered down to the radio station sometime in 1960. For the very beginning of 1964, well, probably September because the beginning of the year for me was September right. back then. It still is, you know? Yeah, when, when you think about the um, beginning of the academic year, it's it's September, right? That's That makes sense. Right. And it was for all the years we were kids, so it's hard to change that. You get older and you say, well, yeah, it's January, but really it isn't January. Right. It's September. Right. So, so that's when you started in, in the fall of 1964. And how long were you with Hofstra Radio? Well, that gets complicated because I married Jeffrey. So I was there as a student until I graduated. Mm-hmm. But then I was there often on intermittently for a long time, uh, about 12 years. So when did you graduate from Hofstra? I graduated, let's call it 67, because that was when I was finished with all of my course. Okay. Um, and then you uh, stayed around uh, because of your, your marriage to Jeff, or you said, I think, about another 10, 12 years or so? Yep. Okay. About 12 years. I really, I left the country in 79, and then I was gone for 10 years. Okay. Um so while you were a student at Hofstra Radio, did you have any uh, management positions or titles or offices? Technically, I was the chief announcer. Mm-hmm. Uh, practically, I was the whatever isn't getting done by somebody else. I did it. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a newsletter. I did little bits of... You know, artsy stuff to put onto the newsletters. I try, I was, I was a speech major. So I tried to help people who clearly needed some help with their speech. Although I wasn't really all that good at it. I was able to help a few people, but not many. Um, I had a radio show. I did Indian music and Mostly Asian music, mm. music from Bali and, you know, China and Japan, because I was also, I was a dual major, I was a music major, so I was taking all these courses in music as if I was going to actually be a musician, which was sort of silly because I never actually was going to be a musician. Hmm. I just liked playing the piano, so... I sort of sidled into music until Herb Deutsch, he probably wasn't there when you were there. He had already retired by then. But he was the, I don't know whether he, I think he was the head of the music department when I was there. And he sat me down one day and he said, your your grades in music are really good. You get A's and B's and absolutely everything, but your heart's not in it. Hmm. So either jump in or jump out. 
But music isn't one of those things you can do half-heartedly. Right. And he was right. I mean, it was, it was, you know, I, I, I was good at it, but I wasn't good enough to do anything with it. I mean, it was more like I was taking my hobby as a major. Right, right. So after that, I went into drama and speech, which was also nothing I intended to do. But really, I knew I was going to be a writer. And, you know, there was no such thing as a journalism course back then. And I'm not sure I would have taken it even had it existed because I didn't want somebody else intruding on my writing style. I liked my writing style just fine. Uh, I did get really involved in the history and philosophy of religion, and I tried to go for a master's in that, but they wouldn't let me because I graduated. Huh. <laughs> I said, can I stay around and get another BA, you know, in a, just in a different area? And they said, nope, you've graduated. <laughs> I said, but, but... <laughs> I, I, I think in, in modern day uh, uh, college level, university level education, I'm sure they'd be more than happy to take your money for whatever you wanted to, you know, study. Well, that's it. It was, I was about seven or eight years too early Okay. to get the benefits of a more relaxed administrative style. But at that point, as far as I'm concerned, I had my tw 128 credits. And I was going to graduate, and that was mm. it. And I, I said, but the problem is that my degree isn't going to enable me to take any kind of a master's that I want to take. Got it. I mean, and I wanted to take a master's that would enable me to do some actual, you know, research and stuff like that. And they were just unwilling, and I threw my hands in the air and gave up mm. because. You know, it was too much of a fight for something that was really very academic. I sort of have a split personality. I mean, writing is one thing. But suffice to say, I'm a really good researcher. Uh -huh. And, then, you know, and I really like doing that stuff. And it combines pretty well with writing because when you're doing that stuff, you're going to write about right. it. Right. But it, that what's really funny is I is the chairman of the philosophy department and the chairman of the sociology department were both, you know, writing letters saying, "Let her in, we want her," and he wouldn't do it. That was so weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But I did want to go back for a second because you mentioned Herb Deutsch, and and he was still teaching when I was there in the '90s. Because a couple of my contemporaries, uh, Todd Packer, Joe Romano, Will Shelley, I believe they all uh, worked with and spent time with him. And I feel like there's an article I I feel like I clicked on somewhere about his career and his his legacy. Yes. So if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit more about perhaps working with him, oh, he was. He was a really cool guy. Yeah. First of all, he was the co-inventor of the Moog synthesizer. Which is amazing. Yes. And hardly anybody knew about it because he didn't talk about it. He was a, you know, he was a kind of a regular sort of guy, you know. Um, but he was also very good at 
discerning what your strength was in music mm. or lack thereof. In my case, it was a lack of enthusiasm for it as a, you know, as a future. Got it. And he was right about that. I didn't play the piano well enough to be a concert pianist. That's a unbelievably competitive area. Sure. And I just didn't have the hands for it. And I never took up a second instrument and I had never worked with my voice enough to do anything with that. So the, as far as I could tell, short of becoming a music teacher, which I didn't want to do, there wasn't really much for me in music. I mean, what was I going to do? Become a, a singer in a bar on Friday nights? <laughs> but he was, he was fun. Unlike most of the other music professors who were like very serious, he was kind of jolly. Hmm. I don't know how else to put it. He had a good sense of humor. And when he ran a class, he made you laugh and he made you interested in what you were doing. I wish I knew more about how he managed to develop the Moog synthesizer. I mean, because he talked about it occasionally, but at the time I didn't really understand how much that meant because that was the beginnings of electronic music. Right. That was a big deal. Yeah. Well, 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 perhaps we can put a, a call out to our, our fellow alumni for, for those who do know or have access to that kind of information. Uh, please, please share along because that's, that's, that's a name that I always knew in my time, but I never took any music classes. I only knew uh, because my friends were taking classes with him. So I would, I would also love to know more about that. Maybe this is a good, good way to get more information about that. A lot of that stuff I didn't even know at the time. It was sort of like he did all of this stuff and he just never talked about it hmm. you know you would think he would have at least mentioned it but i wouldn't ever have known about it if i hadn't read about it somewhere else uh well i i suppose his his focus was more uh on the educational part and it sounds like you brought some of the things that you were learning in classes to the station so you, you said you were playing music from india from china from from somewhere else bali right right and it was well it was very interesting music i don't know if anybody even listened to it but that was the all girls show because sue ronneberger who was the other female person at the station was my engineer and we would sort of line up what we were going to play and the only time I broke was for our required hourly, I think it was hourly we had to say who we were. Sure, top of the hour, station ID. If we could, I'd like to take us back to your first uh, entrance to the radio station. And if you could describe uh, what the station was like, where it was, and what brought you to Hofstra Radio at that point in 1964. Well, first of all, I had just moved into a rented room near the college. And I was kind of at a bit of a loss for where to put myself. 
You know, I hadn't really, there weren't any dorms. You know, you didn't move into a dorm and meet your dorm mate. And it wasn't like that. You sort of had to establish your own social circle. And I hadn't really done that. Mm. I had spent my, my, my freshman year, you know, falling in love, falling out of love, falling in love, falling out of love, uh, which was, you know, very 16 years old of me. Uh, and now it was my sophomore year and I was all of 17 and just feeling very like lost. Mm. So I sort of was roaming around the campus quite, quite literally just wandering around. And I looked down the stairs and I said, I wonder what that is. You know, there were no signs. It wasn't even a sign on the wall which said WVHC and an arrow. Hmm. It was nothing. It was just a dark hallway down the stairs. And clearly there was something in there because it was a light on. So curiosity got the better of me. And I wandered down the stairs and poked my head in and said, what is this? (laughs) And the person I encountered was, think Dick Bomsey, uh, who was one of the early people there. And he said, this is the radio station. I said, you mean we have a radio station? <laughs> and he said, yes, we aren't very powerful, but yes, we were still 10 watts at that point. I think we just moved up from carrier current to 10 watts. And it was a few years before we 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 moved up to, I think, 250 and then 500. And I remember when Jeffrey was installing that first 250-watt antenna, and they hadn't completed the library yet. But it was supposed to go on top of the library. Oh gosh! So wow. It, so so where would the antenna have have been at the little theater or or a taller building? I, it was on one of the. I think it was on the uh, administrative building. Okay. Watch Macaulay, Grafton Hall. Something like that. I don't even remember the names of the buildings anymore. It has been a long mm-hmm. time. But it was, it, because it, I mean, first of all, Hofstra, as you know, is on flat ground. Right. I mean, basically it's at sea level. I think it may be 20 feet above sea level, but that's about it. (laughs) So it was on the top of a three-story building. So you can imagine it didn't really have a lot of, you know, reach. I mean, if you... It had some strange bounces. I mean, people heard it in Ohio, but couldn't hear it in East Meadow. <laughs> that, for some reason, that makes sense. I'm not sure why, but <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was it was interesting. I mean, because it was FM, you wouldn't think it would have that kind of bounce, but the atmosphere does what it does, and. I don't know, maybe it hit a low-lying cloud, you know, and and took a jump. But there were people who would call in from really far away 
And then there were pe- people right nearby who couldn't hear it no matter what they did. Hmm. Which is why we developed that, you know, our, our motto, which is don't tune us in, we'll drift to you. <laughs> that sounds perfect. That sounds that sounds perfect. Well, the, the antenna, we our first antenna, that 250-watt antenna was secondhand. It had been part of... I think possibly W H L I. Okay. Uh, and it was their old secondary booster antenna. It wasn't even their primary antenna. Uh, but it was a, certainly a big improvement over the 10 watts we'd had before. And of course, meanwhile, Jeffrey was trying to figure out how to fill out the FCC has a lot of paperwork. Sure. So we spent a lot of long evenings trying to figure out what they wanted him to say. You know. And it's. I'm not sure we ever entirely figured it out. We just did the best we could, and apparently it was good enough. Right. And it's not like you can look something up on the internet or, or make a quick phone call. It was, it was certainly a, a slower pace and a, and probably a more difficult bureaucracy to manage. Um, but, but so, so you wandered down there to uh, the station, which was in the basement. And I think in our conversation with, with Gary, uh, you described it as a series of several rooms with one entrance and one exit. And they were fairly small rooms. Well, there was when you came down inside you were in the office for for want of a better word and it included basically a desk and a a cabinet for paperwork mm. and that was pretty much all there was room for because the front door was there and if you were working at that desk every time somebody opened that front door in the winter it was an interesting cold blast down your neck. Oh, gosh. And that was also the only window and the only entrance. I don't even think it would be legal now to only have that one entrance up and down the stairs. It, it, it does sound fairly interesting. And in a separate conversation I had with Tom Curley, he, he said that Jeff uh, knew that it wasn't necessarily legal to be there, but, uh, that was where the station was and they made the best of it. So, um, that sounds about right. That sounds right. Yeah. It, it was the kind of thing where you think, boy, I sure hope we never have a fire down here right? because it was that kind of place where you think if there's a fire, we're dead, all of us. But if you made a left turn in the hallway, right after you came in the front door, there was a hallway that led on the left to Studio C, which was kind of the announcer's booth, and also there was a typewriter and a desk. Mm. And that's where Gary, who was at the program director when I got there, mostly worked. And then on the right, there was the big studio, uh, Studio B, which was, you know, where... The record library was and the big table that the DJs or interviewers or whoever was on the air sat. And then a big window into Studio B, which was Master Control, where there were 
two turntables, one on each side, and behind it, a metal rack, which had a tape recorder and eventually a cartridge machine, which was a big jump up in technology at that point. You were, you were alluding to earlier that, that uh, the staff was fairly small and that there were only two women working at the station. When you showed up, were there, were there any other women working at the station? No, not, not then. There were eventually later, but there was still, proportionately speaking, it was maybe three or four women to 10 to 12 men. Hmm. Well, boys, <laughs> we were all very young, but it was, there were definitely more, more, more guys than gals. Uh, Sue was exactly the opposite of me. She didn't, she was entirely technical. She was really fascinated and interested in the board and the circuitry and how things ran. And I had kind of like a minus 25% interest in that stuff. Turns out I got real interested in it later. Who knew? But she was my engineer. And we also were very good friends. We had our babies six months apart and our, our kids were raised together. Her first firstborn, Julie, and Owen were very good friends through most of their lives. Hmm. That, that's, that's interesting because so many of the conversations are about the, the people that we meet and the lifelong friendships. But, but now you're saying your children had friendships, which is, which is a different take on it. And I imagine it's not the only one, but that's, that's a, that's an interesting part of the legacy. Sue and I were probably the people who, other than like Jeffrey and her husband, Ted, who really were with the station a long time because Ted Ronneberger was also the station's, um, chief engineer, and I don't think he got paid for it, but he was there as long as I can remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, you know, until he moved away for a job somewhere else, he took care of that antenna and sort of managed, you know, kept kept the place running. So she and I were there a long time. Mm -hmm. And I remember being pregnant there and bringing our kids there and, yeah. So this would have been um, all in the little theater because I know at some point there was an office in Memorial Hall. And this, yeah, that was later. That, that was later. That was later on. They didn't, they didn't even start. They started building in Memorial Hall in the late 1980s. I know because they were actually still building it when I came back from Israel and that was in August of 87. So they were still actually constructing the Memorial Hall studios in 80, yeah, in in 80, in late 87. And 
I don't even know where they're located now. Actually, well, there, there's the new uh, addition, and I say new because that was built when I was there in the in the 1990s. Uh, so I think that's now part of Dempster Hall. I don't I don't know if the building has its own name, but the offices and studios uh, are part of Dempster. Uh, we moved out of Memorial in 1994. Um, but uh, to to get back to your story at the beginning, so so you and Sue are on the air, uh, probably the only two women sometimes uh, there at the station. Do you remember getting on the air the first time? Do you remember anybody training you in in how to be an announcer or no. be an engineer? No, but what did happen is I had really terrible speech because I'd grown up with a lot of braces in my mouth. Okay. And I had never quite learned how to move my tongue in a normal way. I was usually dodging wires. They now make braces a lot more comfortable. But back then, there were a lot of pointy things sticking into your mouth. So Jeffrey said, you need to get some speech therapy. Mm -hmm. And since I was still in school, that's why I became a speech and drama major. I needed to do something about my speech. And the easiest way to do it was to take, take speech courses. And the easiest way to get a lot of speech courses was to change my major again. I changed my major about every three months for a while. <laughs> Whatever I was interested in, I switched my major to it. So I was very surprised when I graduated. What do you mean I'm graduating? I, <laughs> I, I never majored in anything. <laughs> Quick, make her graduate before she changes her major again. <laughs> it, was, it was almost like that. Mm. But that's why I became a speech major, because my speech was really bad. And there was a teacher there. Dr. Cruz, Lois Cruz, who was very, very old-fashioned in the way she trained you to speak, but she was really very good. And when you were through with a year, well, one semester, really, of her speech course, you could really speak. Hmm. If you went in there with, with all kinds of lisps and problems when you came out, you could really speak. It was kind of amazing. I don't know if they use the same methods anymore, but we had the little bone we stuck between our teeth. And, you know, it, it was it was very, very 1850s. <laughs> but it worked. So, I mean, God. Gary had the same teacher I did. I mean, if you went into speech for any reason, you got Lois Cruz first. She was the bottom line of learning how to speak. And then from her course, you continued taking more speech courses as part of your major? Yeah, because, because they were easy. You know, I was taking a lot of really difficult philosophy and sociology courses. So I needed some things which weren't, you know, weren't quite so difficult. I mean, some of the other courses I was taking required some serious thinking and some heavy-duty research and writing. Mm -hmm. And speech courses were, you know, piece of cake. 
I mean, just sort of went in. And if you, if you followed directions and didn't argue a lot with the teachers, which I always did because <laughs> I can't help myself. I have to argue with people. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you didn't do that, you could just slide through those courses and come out with an A every time. You would have had to be incredibly stupid to not get an A in those courses. Well, I, I, I wish I had known about those courses in my time there. That would have been helpful. Uh, well, you know, it was one of those things that it was a department nobody kind of knew anything about unless you needed speech therapy. Then you discovered then you discovered the department because that was where you could find help. And for a lot of people, those courses were the springboard into a real profession. Mm-hmm. And without them, they would never have been able to get there because, uh, I mean, there were people, we had one one kid, I forget his name, and maybe that's just as well, but he had one of those uh, Elmer Fudd lisps. Mm. So when he was talking about Beethoven's triple concerto, he would call it the twipple concerto. And I actually thought at first that it was a different concerto than the one I knew. That it was that it was the twibble. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was the triple. He just couldn't get that R in there. And off to speech he went and he came out talking like a person. It was amazing. Hmm. You, you, you mentioned that, that being very helpful to you, and you've mentioned Sue and Jeff and Gary. Who were some of the other people who were at the station at the time when you first got there who were helpful in helping you figure out what you wanted to do and what your role might there be? Helpful, not so many people. Friendly and interesting. Lots of people. But I was... I had a pretty clear idea of what I was going to do. And the radio station was just a place to sort of hang out and do some creative stuff and write a newsletter and know that somebody besides me read it, Um, you know, mess around with music. But let's see, who was there? I mean, when I started there, it was Dick Bomsey and Bob Ring and Gene Snyder, sort of running. Dick Maitland. Hmm? Dick Maitland. Dick Maitland, thank you. Maitland and Ring were partners. They they produced a lot of Sesame Street shows for like 30 years. Hmm. And they have tons of Emmy Awards, the two of them. Uh, Dick has 24. Yeah, Gary says Dick has 24 Emmys. Wow. That's kind of, a, that may be a record. 
That's 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 very impressive, and it it all starts in that in that little theater in that little underground yes, studio. It did, it did, and people about eighty percent of the people that I worked with moved on to radio and television. Wow. I think I may have been the only one who went on to print. But almost everybody went into some kind of media. Charlie Kay, who was, I think he was one of the vice presidents at, is it CBS, Gary? Yeah. CBS. He was like a really big deal Mm -hmm. for a really long time. And he only retired relatively recently. He has a kind of a big presence on, on Facebook. He publishes his photography. He's a good photographer, a really good one. But it's funny because he was one of the funny people at at the radio station. He was always the guy making jokes. Hmm. And then when he got into TV, he got real serious, you know. And now he's back to making jokes. I guess retirement does that. Hmm. But he was like five years younger than me. And then... You know, I was also there when Tom showed up mm-hmm. and Mark Wiener and, of course, Ted Ronneberger and. Uh, you know, so many of these people became just friends. Right. You know, they weren't people that, I mean, they were people that hung out at our house, not just at the radio station. Because there was almost no difference, really, between our social life and the radio station. It was kind of one thing, hmm. one sort of continuity. Well, that, that leads me to my next question, and I, I think you've, you've kind of answered it. But my, my thought process is, who was helpful when you got there? And then when did you feel comfortable? When did you know this was the place you were going to spend so much time with these particular people all the time. Did, did you feel that initially? Did it take a little while to warm up and feel comfortable? No, it was pretty much, it was pretty much instant. It was kind of like, ah, okay, this is good. I think I'll stay here. You know, Gary, Gary and I were talking about this the other night. There was a sense that, you know how in fraternities they try to decide whether or not you're going to fit. Mm-hmm thing is, at the radio station, there was no such thing. Whoever you are, whatever you were, you fit. There was no sense that you had to be a certain kind of person. You just had to be a person. Any old person. Well, you it, could be a it sounds like there were very interesting people there. I think that's that's sort of the thing, that you, you had something to say or you had an interest and you brought that into the group and it was just absorbed. Yes, but also very accepting. Yeah. I mean, everybody was in their own way odd. Everybody had their own quirks and nobody cared. It was probably of all the places I've ever been the most accepting. Mm. There were absolutely no qualifications except that you be interested in working there in some capacity doing something. 
even if it was just sorting the mail or, you know, organizing the record library or, you know, writing logs or, you know, whatever you would do. It really didn't matter if you were willing to do something and I don't think anybody was ever rejected for any reason that I can think of. So obviously Hofstra Radio is a significant part of your life. And and to look back on your life, I think a lot of things uh, spin back to your time there. Uh, but it- well, two, two husbands and uh, like 10 years of my life, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's definitely significant. But but what I'd like to try to do to wrap up here is see if you can go back to your mindset as I think you said as a seventeen year old. It sounds like you graduated high school early. As you as you walk down into the into the steps into the little theater uh, and getting used to things, what did you think that the radio station would be for you? What did you hope at that time? You know, I don't think I thought of it that way. It was more like I had found a place where I was comfortable Mm -hmm. and where I liked the people. And it was a place to be. Remember, I had just left my parents' house. I was living in a rented room near the school. Uh, It wasn't a dorm, so I had no social life that was, you know, part of the college. I wasn't a... In, in a sorority, I wasn't part of that kind of crowd. So I didn't really have a social life. And for me, the radio station became my social life. It became the place where all the people I liked were. Hmm. So as far as that went, it the only thing that I couldn't find there were three other people who played bridge. <laughs> I had to go to Memorial Hall for that. But but to to imagine uh, walking in there again as a young person trying to to find their their direction and then what it's become in your life it's just it's remarkable and I think uh, a lot of people will will hear this and and relate to that how important this station uh, became for the rest of their lives. It also became. The springboard for friends. I, I know that sounds sounds a little odd, but the people there were for me far more important than the radio part of it. Hmm. The people became my friends, and the people, you know, were, were the had the ideas that help me move forward. I mean, my first two jobs were in radio. I worked at WHLI and I worked at WJAR, something like that. But the people were the important factor. That's that's really... The people were absolutely the important factor. I mean, I don't really actually know what I would have done without it. I mean, it isn't like Hofstra was... I don't know what it's like now. I mean, once they put in the dorms and stuff like that, it became a very different school. But when I was there, there was no focus 
for a social life. A lot of people, for a lot of people, it was just a commuter school. You know, you went there, you took your courses, and you left. Hmm. There wasn't really a focus. There were no, I know there were fraternities and sororities, but I didn't know anybody who belonged to one. I mean, nobody, nobody. It just wasn't a big deal. And I think eventually they sort of disappeared and nobody missed them. It And we didn't have much in the way of sports teams. I mean, I think maybe they do now. But they didn't really even have, they didn't have a gymnasium. They didn't have a football field. They didn't have a basketball court. I mean, they didn't have any of those things. So the things that are the focus for social life in other schools, Hofstra really didn't have at that point. Hofstra and Adelphi both shared that commuting school thing. And there was just, it was very hard to find a place to fit in and the radio station was great for me because I was fine I was as fine as anybody else yes I was very young but I didn't know I was Mm -hmm. I thought I was very mature who knew but but that uh that that little radio station became uh in a sense a, a a new family it was very much a family and you know every once in a while when we get together with tom and ellen you know and we, we start to talk about it and we think you know we should write a book or something and then we say nah <laughs> <laughs> it gets too complicated you know it because it wasn't one thing it was many things over a period of years and like tom who who, like me, graduated, but he came back. Right. And he taught there. And like Mark Wiener did too, he came back. You know, so that even when you left, you never really left because it wasn't like when you graduated Hofstra, you automatically graduated the radio station. The radio station was a separate entity, and while it was on the campus... It wasn't really Hofstra. It was itself. Mm. And I don't know if that has changed. But when I was there, when you were part of the radio station, it didn't, you didn't even have, a lot of the people who worked there didn't even go to Hofstra. They weren't even students. Right. Uh, Rick Cohen lived across the street and found his way to the radio station because he lived across the street. Uh, when Ross Mitchell showed up, uh, he was just, he was 13 and looking for something to do. And he never went to Hofstra and neither did Ricky. They never, they, they, they never, they were never students. Um, 
Ted Ronneberger was never a student. <laughs> I mean, I think at least half the people who worked there were not students at Ostra. They were students at the radio station. And I don't know if that was part of the reason that Hofstra kept trying to close the station because it's possible that the high percentage of non-students working there may have contributed to their belief that it didn't really belong. Hmm. I mean, they had to have some reason. I never quite understood why they would keep persistently trying to shut it down when it didn't cost very much to keep it open. And it wasn't, it, you know, it had, had, you know, the facilities that we had were almost all donations from other states from other radio stations or television stations. So I don't understand what their what what their point was. It would have saved them a few bucks, but it, you know, wouldn't have gained them anything. Perhaps it was out of sight, out of mind, or just they, they couldn't see the relationships. They couldn't see the teamwork. They couldn't see the effort that people were putting in to make the product and to make careers and to make those relationships. And if that's, that's not something you can put uh, on a spreadsheet, but uh, I'm, I'm grateful that those of you who were there and kept the place alive and kept it running and growing uh, that you were so dedicated. I'm, I'm thankful. And I'm, I'm sure thousands of other people are as well. Well, yeah. And they also, I think had a very limited view of the future of communication. Mm. They didn't see what was coming, but I think we did. One of the things that happened when you became involved in the radio station was a realization of how much this was going to matter. Even if it didn't matter a lot right this minute, it was going to. And you kind of could feel it. There was that kind of buzz that this was going to be an important part of the future. And, you know, the people who ran Hofstra at that time were pretty much stick-in-the-mud academics who really didn't have a grip on the future. I'm not sure they do yet, frankly. A lot of colleges are still awfully stuck in the mud, you know, and sort of like, don't really get it but they didn't get it at all they didn't they they didn't even realize that television mattered i i think they were convinced it was going to go away wow <laughs> wow <laughs> and how how things have changed uh marilyn these these stories have been uh really fantastic and it helps me uh get a sense of the continuity of of the the story of Hofstra Radio and I know you have more stories and I'm working on more questions and uh hopefully we can we can have another conversation sometime no problem any old time <laughs>